0: Well, good evening. It's good to see all of you here, those of us that are here. Before we get started, I want to start with, uh, with a prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you for being a great God and for giving us these lives and this earth and your love and your son. And We pray that you would give us eyes to see and to understand that there's more to come and that. Farther along, we will see it, we'll see it for real. So I pray that you would bless us with that understanding and with that faith this evening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 3 and verses 1 through 15. I know, uh, was it last week? Stuart preached on the same text, but I already had it written, so we're going to do it again. Um, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, why are you here this evening? Do you want God? I know it's uh, so tempting for us to want God for our own purposes or to make our lives better, to get ahead in a job. Maybe a marriage is struggling or there's some other problems in our lives and we just need a greater force than we have within ourselves to put things right so that we could be comfortable. Or people use God for, for their businesses. In America, we've, we've been blessed to really have sort of a Christian ethic for for a couple of centuries, really. And so it's been maybe the convenient thing to do to claim God on your side so that you could be more successful. Politicians sometimes will claim God to, to get people on their side. Leaders of all kinds will do that kind of thing. But I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm wondering if you want God for His purposes and for His will. John 15, 16 says, Jesus speaking, you did not choose me, but I have chosen you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. What's the fruit? The fruit is the fruit of a vine connected to the Father through the Son. The fruit is the Father's will lived out in our lives. And we don't get to choose Jesus and then dictate to him how it is that he will bless us. He chooses us when we abide in him and then we go and we bear the fruit that he produces the abiding fruit of love and joy and everlasting life. So ultimate joy and realizations of ultimate reality are fulfilled exceedingly in never-ending eternity when we want God and his purposes. Just a few verses prior to 15, 16, where Jesus said, you did not choose me for your purposes, but I chose you for mine. Just a few verses prior in verse 11, John 15, 11, he said, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So it flows from God to Christ to us. His joy, his will, his fruit are produced in us. It doesn't happen any other way. A branch, a branch doesn't say to the vine, Vine, there's a fruit that I want to produce and I will use you to accomplish my end. We know it doesn't work that way. and Jesus uses earthly language like that so that we can, we can get it, we can comprehend it, we can see it, and then hopefully get the profound truth that lies beneath that simple language. So full joy, do you want full joy? Of course you want full joy. We need, but we need God for that. When We need Jesus to bring us to him and for the joy of Jesus to be in us. God created us, we need him. John 1, speaking of Jesus, says, In the beginning was the word, That's Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus himself being excluded from everything that was made, made everything that was made. He was God. He did it. He made us. He created the entire universe and without him was not anything made that was made. So as the crown on his creation, God made us these puny little insignificant, nearly nothing jars of clay in a vast and seemingly endless universe, universe beyond our comprehension that's created to show the glory of God who is infinitely, mind-blowingly beyond our comprehension and beyond even the things that he created. John 20 verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. We have life in the name of Jesus. Jesus came to earth to show God, to show God's glory, to show God's mission, to show God's will for humanity, and to be a perfect example of how to live God's will and how to redeem it. And He redeemed us from our fruitless ways. So as John works his way through this book, he's writing a book about Jesus and he's showing us the glory of this man, Jesus. So last time that I spoke, we looked at the end of chapter 2. We get a glimpse at the end of chapter 2 of what humans want to do when we see the kind of glory that Jesus produces. We want to make it our own and Jesus won't have it. it says there in the end of chapter 2 that he did not entrust himself to them. John speaking about people who believed in the name of Jesus, but he did not entrust himself to them. Literally, it means that Jesus did not believe in them because he knew what was in their heart. So he says, if you want to make this glory your own, he's not going to have it. You're not getting any of Jesus. So John chapter 3, we get introduced to Nicodemus. Coming right out of that, where we get talked to about these, these kind of people who misuse the glory of Jesus, we get introduced to Nicodemus. And, but Nicodemus isn't totally gone because he's still seeking. He has some questions. Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem called Six Honest Serving Men. It goes like this. I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. I, I mentioned that poem because this text gave me a lot of difficulty in trying to come to the bottom of it. I spent a great deal of time reading and rereading and meditating and thinking and praying. I think the Lord gave me the insight to see it by those six honest serving men. So as we look at John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15, let's look at the who, the what, the when, the why, and the how. So follow along, we're just going to work our way through Genesis... Or John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. So right off the bat, here's our who. At the end of chapter 2, we saw Jesus not entrusting himself to man. The men to whom he did not entrust himself were the men who saw what Jesus was doing. Nicodemus saw what Jesus was doing. They saw his power, the works of God, and they believed that they were seeing it. It was happening. They believed it. But their belief was not a belief that rose to the level of receiving Jesus as God, the Christ. So this man, Nicodemus, is such a man. No, but he's no ordinary common man. He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's a religious authority. He's studied the Torah to greater depths than just about anybody else. Beyond that, he's a member of the Sanhedrin. So he's part of what is essentially the Supreme Court of Israel, and a body in whom all final the final answer of all questions of law would come to rest. So this is the who, Nicodemus. And he came to Jesus by night and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. So again, remembering the the final verses of chapter two, we see the same attitude appear here in the words of Nicodemus. He has a great respect for Jesus. He calls him teacher. He recognizes that Jesus has an authority that's greater even than his own, very weighty and considerable power. He has great respect. He knows that Jesus is from God and that God is with him because he sees the fruit in Jesus' ministry. But you notice he doesn't go so far as the close disciples of Jesus have gone or others have gone in recognizing Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. So verse three, Jesus answered him, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we're getting to the what here. It's interesting because we see Jesus answering a question. Jesus answered him. He's answering a question. And the original language is such that it gives you the impression that a reply is, is, is expected. A response is expected. So Jesus is answering a question except Nicodemus hasn't asked a question. He made a statement. A statement that Jesus comes from God. And then we see Jesus answering him by saying, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. So we can, I think, read an inquisitive and confused tone into what Nicodemus has said to Jesus. And Jesus answers him by saying, you won't have your answer unless you're born again. Maybe Nicodemus is really asking him, who are you? Nicodemus won't really see the answer or have a part in the Messiah's kingdom unless he is born again. He won't see God. He will only see these physical, earthly workings until he gets some new eyes. So the what is be born again. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus is interjecting a how. Nicodemus asks how. He's not understanding the point of how to see God. He's blinded. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So, when and where and why, I think we're getting to here. Jesus explains again and in slightly different terms the birth is not a physical birth. Not the first physical birth, but is of water and the spirit. It's a process that must take place in the here and the now, or Nicodemus will not see the future kingdom of God. The when and the where and the why. Nicodemus would have been intimately familiar with uh, ceremonial washings of water. He would have been steeped in that kind of thing. But Jesus is not calling for a washing. He's calling for a birth of water and the spirit. They are bound together and the new birth does not happen without a union of the two. But the birth is decidedly spiritual and the spiritual kingdom that Nicodemus is not seeing. Nicodemus must be born of water and the spirit in this age if he is going to see and enter the kingdom of God. So verse seven, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit so jesus continuing to answer how nicodemus why are you why do you wonder why are you marveling why aren't you getting this why you, why don't you understand it so he uses a natural example to help him this natural phenomena is one that is accepted without wonder the wind blows that's accepted you hear it you feel it you see the signs of it's working And you could just imagine on a cool sort of desert night in Jerusalem in a dim street lit only by the moon and the stars that a gust of breeze would blow by as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and rustle the vegetation and maybe blow a leaf down the path. You don't know where that came from or where it's going, but you accept it. It does what it does and you don't have control of it. It's not under your power. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus has seen Jesus' work, but he falls short of the faith he needs to accept what he has seen. He needs to get spiritual. He must be born of the Spirit. He must accept that what he is seeing is the work of the Messiah. He must give himself over to this greater power. Verse 9 Nicodemus said to him, Again, how can these things be? Again, Nicodemus asking how. He wants to know the process, he wants to see some proof. He just can't believe that the wind has actually blown unless he sees where it comes from and where it goes. Over in Matthew chapter 11, uh, John the Baptist sent some disciples of his to speak to Jesus to ask him, Are you the Messiah? And Jesus said to them, You go back and tell John all the works that I'm doing, the people that are being healed, the demons that are being cast out, and that I'm preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And that would have been enough for John the Baptist. But it's not enough here for Nicodemus. He's not believing it. Verse 10, Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Clearly, the implication is that he should understand. Jesus asked, How is it that a leading teacher in Israel does not understand faith? Verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus and his disciples have been speaking of a spiritual kingdom. The fruit they are bearing gives witness to a spiritual force, and yet Nicodemus does not receive it. Verse 12, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? If Nicodemus will not believe that the wind has blown, he would not believe even if he saw where it came from or where it went, because he never believed that it blew in the first place. If he never believed that the wind blew in the first place, then to show him where it came from or where it went would be of no value. If he does not believe in Jesus as the Christ, if he does not accept by hearing his word and seeing the effects of the power of God on earth, as it happens right in front of his eyes, then neither would he believe if he saw the unseen heavenly things. Jesus said, if I tell you heavenly things. Even if Jesus eliminated the need for faith, Nicodemus would still not believe because he never accepted that Jesus was God in the first place. He never accepted the evidence of God's working. Jesus has told him earthly things. And the when and the where and the why and the new birth and what's required. And furthermore, Nicodemus has seen the signs that Jesus performed. And it's though he has denied that the wind is even blowing. Verse 13 No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus tells Nicodemus, In fact, Nicodemus, you won't get to see heaven because only the Son of Man, who has ascended and descended from heaven, has ever been there. Verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus' final rebuke to Nicodemus is the use of an example that Nicodemus would have been very familiar with. He would have known all the great factual details of it as as a teacher of the law and as one who studied it. Jesus teaches Nicodemus the point that he's missed all these years as he studied it. It was the example of when the Israelites were in the desert and they were were struck with a plague of snakes sin was destroying them, seeking their own way was destroying them, and God provided salvation to them if they would only lift their eyes in obedient faith to look upon a snake that Moses had raised above the camp on a stake. Nicodemus, if you would have eternal life, you must look upon me as the son of man who is raised up to bear your sin and believe. Otherwise, The plague of sin and unbelief will destroy your soul. So I think that's really the point of the text. And having worked through it, I just want to lay out a few applications and we'll be done. Four points of application. Though I'm sure there's many, many more that you could pull out of here. Number one, think, ponder, meditate, read, reread the word of God. I've heard it said that fast reading kills. And I, I think that's true. I think that is a danger. But I don't think that was Nicodemus' problem. I don't think that he read so fast that he didn't see the truths. He was a deeply studied man. Maybe he was too familiar with the text. Maybe he was influenced by other people's opinions. Maybe unwilling to give up his biases because the condemnation that the truth would bring to him. Whatever the case, Nicodemus probably missed the point of many teachings and examples in the Old Testament besides the one that Jesus points out to him, and he should have understood. And so it is for us that we have no excuse. Think, ponder, meditate, pray for understanding. There's one theologian who speaks of how he grew up into his 20s, viewing the word of God as pearls, a collection of beautiful truths, and he was simply gathering verses like pearls. There's no doubt that there's some value in that approach, but it's not primarily the way the Bible is to be approached. The Bible makes arguments, and that particular theologian likens it to a chain. Each verse in a book is connected to the next verse in that book in a chain of argument, and it takes thought and struggle and prayer to go beyond the pearls on the surface to understanding the deep and bottomless arguments from the mind of God. So think... Inquire and pray. That's the next point. Inquire. Be inquisitive. Nicodemus had questions and he was seeking. He may have hid that from his colleagues as he came in the night, but he did come to Jesus with questions. So don't accept what you see and hear without questioning it. And when you're confused, seek an answer. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29:13. Third application, don't be afraid. Don't feel as though you need to hide your question because as the adage goes, there's someone else with the same question. And besides that, as in the case of Nicodemus, your life might depend on it. Don't be afraid to lead others by asking questions that Jesus wants to answer. The fourth point is faith. It is faith that is the answer to Nicodemus' question of how. We are born again by water and the spirit. There's no power in the water and there's no connection to the spirit without faith. Receive the testimony of Jesus and his apostles. Believe that Jesus is the son of God and looking to him is your only hope for a cure to the plague of sin. The gospels were written as eyewitness accounts to the glory of Jesus. John's stated objective in the book is to show you Jesus so that you might believe But just as Jesus was working signs 2,000 years ago, signs that caused Nicodemus to realize Jesus at least came from God, Jesus is still working today. Wherever the truth of the gospel has gone, there has been revivals and upheavals of goodwill and transformation of societies and education has improved and care for the sick and weak and elderly and defenseless receives great attention Government serve justice with fairness and integrity. And our history, our heritage in this country has been a history and a heritage of the blessings of the gospel of Christ. But our danger is that we become blinded by the blessings and lose sight of those heavenly things. We lose our faith. Our danger is that we lose the faith we need to see the heavenly things. We are seeing an erosion of these earthly blessings. And I, I see Christians get angry about it sometimes, except I often doubt that it is anger towards sin, but rather an anger that their precious rights and blessings and comforts and a custom way of life are being taken away. We've been spared persecution in this country and it's probably been more politically and economically and socially advantageous in many cases over the years of our existence in this country to identify as Christian. But this is not the norm of the ages, and it is not the norm in most of the world even today. All throughout the New Testament and in examples from the Old Testament, we see that all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So don't be surprised when the fiery ordeals come. And in those days, we won't be able to live godly, love our enemies, and pray for those who persecute us unless we have the eyes of faith. No one has seen heaven, and no one has seen God, but we have seen Jesus. So keep the faith, keep your eyes on Jesus, and regardless of earthly blessings or earthly trials, you keep your eyes of faith you will see the kingdom of God